We're going to talk about Palm Sunday today, so we're actually going back in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew 21, but you don't need to turn there because I want to give you a harmony of the Gospels today. A harmony of the Gospels is a record with each of the Gospels woven together to piece it together so you can get in living color the full picture of what was going on. And as we talk today, uh, have you ever... Have you ever maybe purchased or won an all-access pass to something, where you get to go to a concert, you get to a particular event, hear a performer, see a celebrity, and then you get to go backstage and talk to them, meet the band, um, have this amazing opportunity to be involved. But it's like that's what Jesus has done for us through the cross and through his ministry. He has given us direct access to God. And we, we not only get to personally encounter God, but it's as if we are asked to join the tour. We are uh, invited to become part of the band and to travel with them and to do ministry with them. It, that's what the Christian life is all about. And that's exactly what Palm Sunday signifies. Um, for much of Jesus' ministry, he had been urging people not to say who he was. Every time he healed somebody um, and they were excited to go tell, he said, no, kind of keep a lid on it. Every time he exercised a demon out of someone, he commanded them to remain silent. Because as we've said before, Jesus is managing doing good, healing people, promoting the gospel, but also he is literally managing his death. And had he allowed people to promote, to promote the good news of the gospel, he might have been killed in the first week or month of his ministry, but for three years, he's managing that. And you need to know that on Palm Sunday, the, the switch flipped. All of a sudden, it's no keeping it a secret anymore. He is boldly proclaiming his Messiahship. He is announcing to the world, yes, I am exactly who you thought I was and what was prophesied in the Old Testament, although it's not going to play out exactly how you might have thought or expected. And I love what Jesus, uh, what Jesus, what Brittany brought up about how the whole city was in an uproar. Matthew's gospel is unique and interesting in that he is the only gospel that mentions the earthquakes. There were three earthquakes in Passion Week. The first was Palm Sunday, and it's a subtle earthquake because when it says all the people were stirred, it's the literal word for earthquake, seismo from which we get seismology. The whole city shook. It quaked in, in fervor and passion and excitement over him. The second earthquake happened on Good Friday as Jesus was on the cross and the, the earth shook violently and the veil in the temple ripped in two, and we're going to talk about that. The third earthquake was Easter morning when the angel of God descended and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And it said that it shook violently as well, and the guards became like dead people. Three earthquakes, only Matthew talks about it. And we're going to talk about this on Easter at the cross, about what a crazy, just insane weekend that that was. But today we want to talk about the significance of Palm Sunday. And the significance of Palm Sunday, as we said before, is that Jesus, as the Lamb of God, rides into Jerusalem. On Sunday, we now call it Palm Sunday, but back in the day it was called Lamb Selection Day because it was the day immediately following the Passover, Saturday, not the Passover, Sabbath. 
immediately following Sabbath. They couldn't work. They couldn't do anything. And so Sunday was the very first day that they could choose a lamb for sacrifice for the upcoming Passover. And so that began, it was called Lamb Selection Day, the first day that they could go and choose a lamb. And Jesus descends from the Mount of Olives toward the holy city, and the symbolism is just shouting, I am the Lamb of God. Choose me. I am the Lamb of God, the once and for all sacrifice that never needs to be repeated for your sins, for the sins of the world. Choose me. When Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem, he passes through the northeastern gate of the Temple Mount. And today we know that gate by three different names. We know it by, as Stephen's Gate, we know it as the Lion's Gate, and we also know it as the Sheep Gate. It's called Stephen's Gate because historians uh, record that that is the actual spot or near the spot where Stephen was stoned for his testimony, for his faith in Christ. It's called the Lion's Gate because in the 16th century, the Ottoman Empire, when they took over, carved or etched lions at the, the very top arch of the gate. And it's called the Sheep Gate because this is the gate through which Temple sheep that were raised for the purpose of sacrifices were led through that gate for slaughter. And so Jesus is coming through this gate on the back of a donkey as the Lamb of God, knowing that he is the sacrifice that is about to be slaughtered. He is coming as the lion from the tribe of Judah, the lion and the lamb, both the lion and the lamb coming through. And he's about to... um, do some amazing things that we're going to look at today. So I'd like for you, if you would, just to listen to the gospel record as I read it for you, and I'll I'll quickly interject which gospel I'm inserting at this point, and you can get the full picture of what's happening here. We start off in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew writes, When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, And immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you will say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately they will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. At this point, Mark's gospel says, And they found a young donkey outside in the street, tied by a door, and they untied it. Luke's gospel interjects, And as they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the donkey? Mark again adds, And they answered them, just as Jesus had said. So they let them go. And they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and Jesus sat on their coats. On the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting, John's gospel interjects, palm branches from the trees, spreading them in the road. At this point, Luke tells us now Jesus came near the path down the Mount of Olives, <coughs> and the whole crowd of disciples, <coughs> John's gospel says, including those who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice. For all the miracles that they had seen. 
Back to Matthew. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. John adds, blessed is the king of Israel. Mark adds, blessed is the coming king of our father, David. Then at this point, Luke tells us, and some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, even the stones would cry out. At this point, John says, his disciples did not understand these things at first, However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that they had done these things and that these things had been written about him. Luke says, as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known this day, even you, the things that make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Back to Matthew. When he entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, literally quaked, as we said, saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. John adds, Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, we've accomplished nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all of those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Mark adds, And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple complex. And he said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer. For all the nations, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. Jesus is quoting Psalms. What he leaves out is the last part of that, which we've talked before, which says to silence the ignorance of God's enemies. And so Jesus, and they know that. They know that Jesus is calling them out as both ignorant and as God's enemies for opposing him. So Mark at this point adds, and they started to look for a way to destroy him. But they were afraid of him, Luke adds, because they could not find a way to do it because all the people were spellbound by what they heard. And Matthew closes out by saying, then Jesus left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he spent the night there. A lot going on. So much rich symbolism in Jesus' actions and what he says and all that is being communicated by that. And really, Palm Sunday and this final week, Passion Week, uh, including not only the crucifixion but the resurrection, Jesus is removing barriers. He's removing every single obstacle that comes between you and I and all humans and God. And the first and foremost, the largest barrier, obviously, that he removes is sin. That's number one in your outline today if you're taking notes. 
Jesus came to remove barriers. First, among all of those, is sin. I read a story this week that said, imagine you're out for a hike on a beautiful day, beautiful spring day, and you come to a creek, but there's something wrong with this picture. You notice that someone has dumped trash into the stream, an ugly sight. Judging by some of the empty soda cans, the trash has been there a while. And there's an ugly film on top of the water. You can't just leave the scene as you found it because it would bother your conscience. So you stoop down and begin gathering the trash. It actually takes several hours before you can begin to see a difference. It's amazing how much junk is there. You sit back and rest for a moment and you realize that you're going to have to keep returning each day until the site is truly clean. And when you come back the next day, it's as if your work has been undone. In fact, there is more trash than before. Somehow, the garbage bred overnight. You think about the unlikelihood of someone coming to this very spot to dump their garbage in the few hours while you were away, and you realize that something smells fishy. So you begin to follow the creek upstream, and sure enough, you come to a garbage dump that has been there for years, and it's emptying out into the passing creek. Your cleaning job only opened up a gap for more stuff to settle. You could go down and clean every day, but if you want your creek to be clean, it means going directly to the source and dealing with what's there. And friends, that's such a beautiful picture of what God did through Christ. God went to the source of our sin nature. And he came to forgive us from our heart, from inside, to cleanse us, to transform us into his image. Because we all know that behavior modification, trying to correct this sinful behavior or this sinful habit or this you know, wrong temptation, is a never-ending game. It's like picking up trash only to have the trash collect in the empty areas that we have cleaned out and, and get even worse than before. And so God came to deal with the root problem, which is our sin. And that's why when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming for the first time, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we've said that that Greek word for takes away literally is a word that means to lift up and place upon an altar. And what a beautiful picture here of how Jesus in his body was both the altar upon which the sacrifice was laid, and he also was the sacrifice the once and for all sacrifice that God used to take care of sin. Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied in us. As Jesus died on the cross, as he literally controlled his last breath, as scripture says, he yielded up his spirit to God. Death did not overcome him. He yielded it up. And right before he yielded up his spirit, he declared, it is finished. And it was a Greek phrase which also meant paid in full. The debt has been satisfied. The note has been paid off. You are free. All charges are dropped. And that's what his death communicated. God was fully satisfied through the death of his son. 
And God, Scripture says, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So we're not talking about a God that dispassionately sat back and watched his son suffer. We're talking about a God that was in Christ loving and reconciling us to himself. Hebrews chapter 9 says, Jesus has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And finally, 1 Peter 2. Jesus personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we could be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, we are healed. The number one barrier that God took care of was sin by removing it from our experience. We still struggle with sin, but it no longer has power over us. It no longer dictates our destiny. Even though it, it, it shouts to us that we should be full of shame and guilt, uh, we know we're children of God now. We know we've been purchased. We know that Christ's blood covers us as the, the lamb's blood that was sh uh, smeared above the doorpost in the original Passover spared the life of the Israelites before they fled Egypt. That's a symbolism of what God has done for us through Christ. The second barrier that I believe we see removed in this Passion Week is the barrier of status. That of status, of position, of rank. As you, as you probably know well, the temple was divided into courts. There was the outer court that anyone was welcome to come or to enter. And then the inner court, which was reserved only for those who were true-born Jews. Beyond that was the inner shrine where only ministering priests could enter. The priests that would offer the, the daily, the weekly sacrifices and do their, their rituals. Only those priests could go there. And then the innermost court was called the Holy of Holies. And that's what the veil or the curtain separated. And only one man, one priest could go into the Holy of Holies only once a year to represent the people and to make intercession for them. And on Palm Sunday, on Lamb Selection Day, Jesus, after he entered Jerusalem, overturned the money changers, those who were selling sacrifices, those who were trying to bilk the people exponentially, raising the cost for sacrifices. They were marketing. This. They turned the whole thing into a game, into a business. And Jesus overturned the tables, removing the significant barrier that keep pe kept people from entering the, the temple, particularly those who couldn't afford to buy a sacrifice. And on Good Friday, Jesus completed this obliteration of barriers when on the cross, as, as God caused the earth to shake, the veil on the temple ripped. And for the first time, people could see behind that inner court and see the actual Ark of the Covenant in which the presence of God dwelt. But we know no longer would God dwell there because at Pentecost, God would come and indwell believers personally. All these beautiful things are happening. And in Matthew's gospel alone, we read the words in verse 14 that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And you have to ask, what's going on here? Well, John's gospel, chapter 5, listen to what John tells us. There is in Jerusalem, <clears throat> by the Sheep Gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five covered porches, and in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, and lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. If you watch that scene in the, in the series The Chosen, you've seen the story of the man who laid by that pool for 38 years, 
wanting to be healed. And Jesus finally heals him. And the, the question is, why hadn't you gone to the pool earlier? Because I couldn't. Someone had to carry me. And by the time I got there, somebody had beat me to that. You can speculate on and on and on as to whether there was actually healing taking place. If, you know, the legends that the stirring of the water, the Holy Spirit blowing upon the water, the wind, whatever. But obviously some had been healed in the past for this legend to be perpetuated. But the point is, is as you go through the sheep gate, Stephen's gate, the lion's gate, directly on the inside to the right is this pool of Bethesda, where all the lame and the blind and the withered and, and all the infirm sat waiting for healing. And as Jesus came through on the donkey, they followed. And for the very first time, they were allowed to go into the temple because he was there. And he had disrupted things. He had turned over the tables, and people were kind of backing up, and he had authority. The first time in their life, they got to go where God wanted them to go all along, and Jesus healed them and blessed them. What a beautiful thing happened because the barriers were broken down. It's the fulfillment of Jesus' stated mission at the beginning of his ministry that's recorded in Luke chapter 4 as he quotes Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. It's showtime. I have, I have disguised who I am. I have kept people from spreading the word. But yes, I am the Messiah. I have come to deliver you. I have come to forgive sins. And I am reflecting the heart of God who wants to, to love you and heal you and, and make you whole. Philip, uh, Philip Yancey writes about this. He says, beginning with the cross and Pentecost, the early Christian church dismantled the barriers of gender, race, and social class that had marked Jewish congregations. Paul, as a rabbi, had given thanks daily that he was not born a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And now Paul, who is converted who has seen the light, who knows the truth of who Jesus is, declares in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the transformation and that's the lesson. God has removed the barrier of social class, of gender, of status, of, of rank, because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The final barrier that I believe we see removed in this Passion Week is the barrier of service. The barrier of service. And I can't believe that I had never seen this before. But what an irony that in the time of Jesus, the one privileged individual who made intercession for the people once a year in the Holy of Holies, this priest, was Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the very man that Jesus stood trial before. It was almost like the battle of the priests. Here's Jesus, the living, eternal priest who never needs to be replaced, and he's against this, this earthly poser, Caiaphas, who isn't representing the people or God. And when Caiaphas tore his robes, I really believe we see beautiful symbolism there. Just as when the veil in the temple rips, saying there is no longer a separation between God and his people, so also when Caiaphas ripped his robe, I believe it symbolized, I am a false priest 
and I have no power to connect you with God. From this point forward, Jesus will lead you directly to the presence of my Father. And all believers can go directly to God through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, not any earthly person of any rank or any office or any priesthood. That's the beauty of what's being communicated here. The veil ripped in the temple symbolizing the confirmation of hope. And that's why Hebrews 6 says, take hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one that enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever. Hebrews 4 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast the confession of our faith. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in all things as we are, yet without sin. So therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. That's the access that we have to God now through Jesus and through Jesus removing the barriers. Direct access to God, to faith, to salvation, to grace because of the work of Christ. Peter in his uh, letters reminds us that not only did Jesus do that for us, but he turned every single believer into a priest. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and following. You are like living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. For you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had received no mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. It's what Martin Luther said is the priesthood of all believers. There's not... The, the priesthood, the pastors, the clergy, and the laity, it's all of us as the people of God. We are all priests of God. We are all ambassadors of God. And so what is our new ministry? What is our, our service and our role? Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave to us this wonderful ministry of reconciliation. Not to me, not to other pastors, not to church staff, but to every single one of us as believers. So we are Christ ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Friends, it's, it's, it's what I touched upon last week. May we not just be inviting people to Easter service at the cross or to church or to an event or to a program. May we, being, may we constantly be inviting people into relationship with Jesus. Because Jesus is the way that we come back into relationship with God. That we are reconciled and brought into God's family. Just a few closing thoughts. Chuck Colson in one of his books said, All through human history... 
kings and princes and tribal chiefs, presidents and dictators have sent their subjects into battle to die for them. Only once in human history has a king not sent his subjects to die for him, but instead died for his subjects. This is the king who introduces the kingdom that cannot be shaken because this king reigns eternally. Amen? Amen. I want to close today with the words of Romans 8. Many of you know them well, but they're so beautiful in light of everything that we've just talked about. Where Paul says, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell itself can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is ours now in Christ Jesus, our Lord.